Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. This is part two of a series of episodes on the Golden State Killer. If you missed part one, you can find it at your favorite podcast provider. It's Beach House 34, episode number 31. To give you all a refresher, part one of the Golden State Killer focused on his crimes in the Sacramento area as a prolific rapist, earning the name East Area Rapist or EAR, E-A-R, as he would later become known. For four years, he terrorized quiet suburban areas around Sacramento. His goal, although he was a rapist, yes, seemed to be more focused on fear, threatening the lives of the women he raped, their spouses or boyfriends, even threatening the lives of their children. He was known to bind his victims with shoelaces and gag them with their own clothing. He struck in the middle of the night, anywhere from midnight to 6.45 in the morning, and awoke his victims by shining a flashlight on them as he stood at the foot of their beds. He would gain entry to the homes at first by simply slinking through an unlocked window. Other times he would just simply walk in the unlocked front door but often he would use a screwdriver to jimmy open sliding glass doors or pry open a screen only to tap out a small area of glass around a window lock so that he could easily reach in with his gloved hand and open the window. He always had a flashlight and a gun and he had no issues jumping over fences to get into protected backyards. No matter how many police were patrolling a neighborhood and later citizens citizen patrols that there were he was never caught he caused fear anxiety and he took away the innocence of a safe neighborhood wherever he attacked the ear attacks appeared to have ended in july of 1979 now by this time he had attacked 50 women and couples men and women whose lives and those of their spouses, boyfriends, and children would never be the same. Women for years, years later, would live in fear, never again feeling safe. Partners would feel as if they failed their significant others. Children would grow up with a parent that was far different before the attack than after. The ear did far more damage than rape. When the last attack occurred in July of 1979, nothing else happened in the Sacramento area. Women who hadn't been attacked could finally breathe a sigh of relief, and those who had been attacked were still waiting for the bastard to be caught. Four months after the last ear attack in July of 1979, the ear task force was reduced to only three investigators. Little did they know that almost 400 miles south of Sacramento, the same fear these women felt would become reality for others. And it all started in Goleta, California. On October 1st of 1979 in Goleta, California, which is located in Santa Barbara County, over 300 miles south of Danville, the location of the last ear attack in July, a call came into the police. It made the Goleta Sun newspaper on October 10th, 1979. And here's what it said. A 32-year-old Queen Anne Lane resident reported that she and her boyfriend were awakened in their bedroom at 2 a.m. by an intruder shining a flashlight in their faces. After searching the house for money and threatening to kill both of them, the intruder forced her to tie up her boyfriend and then to lie down nude on the living room floor. The victim explained that she was afraid the suspect was about to rape her, but that her boyfriend escaped into the backyard at that moment and began yelling for assistance, causing the intruder to flee. Now, while this is a very succinct newspaper article, 
We have a little more information about this attack thanks to authors Michelle McNamara and Larry Crompton. The police learned that the couple awoke to someone shining a flashlight in their eyes and their bed was being kicked. The man told them to lay on their stomachs and if they moved, they'd be killed. Quote, I gotta have money, the man said. He then instructed the female to tie the man. He then tied the women's hands and ankles. The intruder then made the female tell him where her purse was. And when he couldn't quite comprehend what she was trying to tell him, he untied her ankles and allowed her to get up and go get it for him. After she did, he made her lie on the floor in the living room and again tied her ankles together. She heard him walking around and then he was right back next to her. And what he did is he put a pair of her running shorts over her head. She could hear him walk into the kitchen and he, she could hear him opening and slamming drawers. She also heard him chanting, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. When she heard him again walk down the hallway, she tried to get to her feet and she was successful. She then hopped toward the front door. Because the shorts were still over her head, she couldn't see and she ended up tripping and hitting the wall. But she felt for the doorknob and it turned. The door opened and as she hopped outside, the bindings fell from her ankles. She began to scream for help when all of a sudden she felt hands grabbing her arm, trying to pull her back inside. The attacker dragged her back into the house and pushed her down attempting to retie her ankles. Her boyfriend, hearing his girlfriend scream, rolled off of the bed and he too hopped to the sliding glass doors in the bedroom. He got it open and then moved into the backyard towards the fence. He tried desperately to get one of the boards from the fence loose enough to get through, but he was unsuccessful. Soon, a flashlight beam began scanning the backyard. He knew the intruder had realized he was gone, but that he couldn't have gotten very far. The boyfriend had made his way far into the backyard and had fallen down behind some bushes. He then rolled behind a tree, hoping to make himself invisible. As he watched the intruder scan the backyard, he watched as the man then went back into the house. The boyfriend then again stood up and started to scream for help. His neighbors had their outside lights on and he was hoping that someone would hear him. As soon as he screamed, he let himself again fall behind the tree, knowing that the intruder may have heard him. Now the woman, still lying on the floor of the living room, tried again to free her feet when she knew the intruder had again left the room, no doubt in search of her boyfriend. She heard a vehicle outside that sounded like it was leaving. Was it the intruder? Had he given up? Not able to free herself, she did what she could to get her body down the hallway, scooting along the carpet, hoping to reach her boyfriend. As she did, the shorts started to come free from her face. It was just enough where she could barely see out of one eye, but she could still see. As she got into the bedroom, she noticed her boyfriend wasn't there. Again, she tried to release the bindings from her ankles, and this time she was successful. She got up and ran back out the front door, screaming. Now, the couple's next-door neighbor happened to be an FBI agent. When he heard the woman scream, he ran outside just as a man pedaled by quickly on a bicycle. The agent jumped in his car and tried to chase down this man. When he got to him, the man dropped the bicycle where it was and jumped over a fence between two houses. Where the suspect had dumped the bicycle, they also located a steak knife. Several shoe imprints were found around their home as well as their neighbors. It was a star-shaped shoe impression similar to those you would find on Adidas runners. In December of 1979, two months after the attack on this couple, burglaries began to occur in Goleta, five of them to be exact. Sliding glass doors were pried open on four of them and side gates were found open. One couple 
who had just gotten back to their house on Windsor Court around 11.15 p.m., noticed a person walking past their front window from inside their house. The suspect ended up running out the rear of the house and jumped over the back fence. The couple's small poodle had been beaten to death. On December 30th of 1979, just weeks after the botched attack on Queen Anne Lane and the series of burglaries, another attack was discovered. Police were called to a residence where osteopathic surgeon, 44-year-old Dr. Robert Offerman, and his girlfriend, 35-year-old Alexandria Manning, a psychologist, lived. Friends of the couple had shown up for a scheduled outing, and they found their sliding glass door open. They walked inside and called out to the couple, but received no response. They continued to walk into the condo, as one of the friends went down the hallway, noticed a naked woman lying on the bed. Now, thinking he was interrupting something, he turned and mentioned that they should leave. But he had a second thought. He knew that he had called out very loudly, loud enough for someone to have heard him. So surely this woman would have heard him yell. So he made his way back to the bedroom for another look. As they walked down the hallway together and peeked inside the bedroom, they noticed that something wasn't right. Alexandria was on one side of the waterbed with her head turned the opposite direction of her body. Her wrists had been bound behind her back. Robert was found on his knees, his head on the floor and buttocks in the air. He laid at the foot of the bed. His left wrist had the same kind of binding that was around uh, Alexandria's wrists. Now, Robert had been shot three times in the back and once in the chest. Alexandria had been shot in the back of her head. The home didn't appear to have been burglarized, but the police did find pry marks on the sliding glass door and a plastic bag that had scraps of turkey on their back patio. Shoe impressions were also found around the exterior of the home. Now, these impressions had a star shape of what they later determined to be an Adidas runner. And if that sounds familiar, it's because these were the same shoe imprints that were found outside the couple's home on Queen Anne Lane. Larry Crompton, who had been involved in the case from nearly the beginning within the Sacramento area and who, as a criminologist, he contacted a gentleman by the name of Jim Bevins when he had heard a rumor of what was happening in Goleta. It sounded eerily similar to the ear. While the ear, the Easteria rapist, hadn't committed murder around Sacramento, he was fearful that he had just simply upped his game. The bindings were the same, as were the tennis shoe impressions outside the home, pry marks on the sliding glass doors. They were all familiar to both of them. After Larry heard about this rumor, he called the Santa Barbara Police Department, and this is the county that would have been charged with overseeing the case in Goleta. Now, Larry tried to get more information and told them about the potential link to the cases in Sacramento. And according to Michelle's book, Larry was told, no, nope, nothing like that here. Now, I personally was flabbergasted at this. The methods were the same. The bindings, the way he broke in, everything aside from the homicide was exactly the same. Now, we'll find out later why they didn't want to talk about the case. In March, and this is months after the first murder, and we'll discover later on later murders, Larry happened to be at a statewide training conference. Now, at this conference, a sheriff's investigator from Santa Barbara County, the county that houses Goleta, was also there at this conference. Now, Larry was hoping that he might be able to get some information about the case in Goleta from this sheriff. Larry played it cool, not letting on that he knew anything and engaged this sheriff in small talk. Then he let the conversation move on to cases. He did a great acting job and later learned some details about the case in Goleta that he wasn't given months earlier when he tried to call them. 
Larry then discovered from the sheriff that when Larry had called previously trying to get information about this case in Goleta that seemed to be really similar to what was what had happened in Sacramento, he had in fact been lied to. And the reason? Quote, President Reagan has a ranch in Santa Barbara County. They don't want the news media to have a field day. They don't want the publicity. And if you feel like I did, this made me a little bit sick to my stomach. I don't know about you, but yeah. On March 13th of 1980, now this is the same month that Larry Crompton had gone to the statewide training conference, another attack occurred. This time, it was a well-known attorney and his wife. The attorney, 43-year-old Lyman Smith, and his wife, 33-year-old Charlene, were found murdered inside their house in Ventura, California. Now, Ventura is 36 miles south of Goleta, California. The couple had been discovered by Lyman's 12-year-old son, who had come to the house to mow their lawn for just a few extra bucks in his pocket. Unfortunately, they hadn't been discovered until three days later on March 16th. When Lyman's son had arrived, he came into the house and he heard an alarm going off. Now it was around noon, so he thought that his dad and his stepmom were just sleeping in. But when the alarm didn't stop and it kept going, he made his way down the hall to their bedroom. He looked at the bed and just saw a sheet covering what appeared to be his dad and his stepmom. But there were pieces of wood scattered all over the carpet in the bedroom. The police then arrived at the home around 2.17 in the afternoon, and upon checking the bodies, they found that both of them had been beaten to death with what appeared to be a log from outside that they would have used in their fireplace. The log, now the murder weapon, was found on the floor at the end of the bed. Charlene had her ankles tied together with what appeared to be cords from the draperies. Lyman, too, was on the bed, and his ankles had also been tied with the same drapery cords. After some investigation, it was determined that it was Lyman who had been killed first. In the living room, cushions from the sofa were lifted and standing upright against the back of the couch. Now, they couldn't find any indication of forced entry, but they did notice that the front door was unlocked, which, you know, this could have been the result of Lyman's son entering the home. The master bedroom window was also unlocked. So could this have been the way that he entered? Five months later, on August 19th of 1980 in Dana Point, which is located in Orange County, California, and 122 miles south of Ventura, where the last attack took place, Another couple was discovered. This couple was discovered within a gated community. The home was owned by Roger Harrington, but it was his 24-year-old son, Keith, and Keith's new wife, Patty, who were living in the home just for the time being. Now, one day, Roger had showed up to the house and he found a note on the front door. It was handwritten and appeared to be from some friends of Keith and Patty. It stated that they had stopped by at 7 o'clock p.m., but no one was home and they were concerned if plans had maybe changed. As Roger walked inside and headed past the kitchen, he noticed that food was still out on the counter from a local grocery store. Even some pieces of bread were lying out on the counter. As Roger made his way to the guest bedroom where Keith and Patty slept, he saw that the door was open. The shutters in the bedroom had been pulled, so it was very dark inside the room. Now, the bed did look like it had been made, but he noticed what he thought was a bump under the blanket. As he approached, he realized how unusual it looked, and so he took his hand to pull down the blanket. Keith and Patty were lying on their stomachs, and both of them had their palms facing upwards. The amount of blood lying underneath them was significant. He could tell, even in the dark, that his son was gone. While the police investigated, 
they noticed that there were marks on the wrists of both victims and on Patty's ankles. The killer had removed their bindings after they had been murdered. They had both been struck with a blunt object while they were covered with the blanket. And during the autopsy, a brass fragment would be found in Patty's skull. Now, this discovery led investigators to believe that this blunt object that was used to kill Keith and Patty was from some brass sprinkler fixtures that were currently being installed in the lawn outside. Six months, six months later, and 23 miles north of Dana Point in Irvine, California, another murder took place. A 28-year-old woman named Manuela Wickoon was murdered also in her bed. She too had been bludgeoned to death. Like the other murders, ligature marks had been noted on her wrists. Now the police found that her sliding glass door also had pry marks and damage to the frame. They also found a large screwdriver on the patio just feet from the sliding glass door. A television from inside the home had been dragged into the backyard near the fence. It was the assumption that the killer had used this television to stand on in order to get over the tall fence. Manuela, she was not supposed to be alone. Her husband was meant to be home with her, but earlier in the week, he had contracted a severe virus that required him to be hospitalized. He would call Manuela every day, and during this time, Manuela had a very established pattern. She would first go to work and then to her parents for dinner, and then off to the hospital to see her husband. Now, one morning, her husband, David, had called her at work only to be told she hadn't come in that morning. He then tried to call her at home and there was no answer. Finally, he phoned her mom and asked if she could please go check on Manuela. After knocking on her door and not receiving an answer, she used her key to go inside. A family friend received a hysterical phone call from Manuela's mom. He too went to the house and walked inside. Nothing could have shocked him more. There was Manuela in bed, blood covering the room. He couldn't understand how some of the blood got to where it was on the walls. Manuela's husband had finally been released from the hospital, but instead of going home, was at Manuela's family's house. Now, the police were also there asking questions. And one of the questions was about why the only light in the bedroom came from their bathroom. And David then asked, where's the lamp? There had been a heavy lamp next to the bed that police never located. This is what was assumed to be the murder weapon. The police also questioned David as to anything suspicious prior to the attack. And he did mention that he had noticed footprints outside and all around his home about three months back. The officers asked him to draw a picture of what these looked like, not knowing, with David not knowing, that the police already had some of their own that they found around the house the night of Manuela's murder. So David drew a sketch and the sketch was an exact match to the impressions the police had taken from the crime scene. Now, one of the criminalists who processed the crime scene was Jim White. Now, the unique thing about criminalists is that they only work with evidence. They don't conduct interviews. They don't question those at the scene. Their only job is to collect evidence and get it to the lab, which is where their real work begins. Now, the thing with criminalists at the time, especially with Jim White, was that he worked out of the sheriff's department crime lab. Now, this crime lab wasn't beholden to just one specific area. And because of this, he had worked many crime scenes in different jurisdictions. So while the police department in Irvine considered Manuela's case to be unique, Jim White, having processed other scenes, knew that it was not. Now, this name, Jim White, will come up again many years later, and we'll get to that soon. But I just wanted to note that this name is very important. Now, five months after, five months later, at the end of July, and this is in 1981, this is another murder. And this time it was back in Goleta, 
nearly 150 miles north of Irvine, so Irvine being the site of the last crime. 35-year-old Sherry Domingo and her friend, 27-year-old Gregory Sanchez, were found bludgeoned to death. They had actually been found by a realtor who had arrived to show the home to a family. As this realtor made his rounds prior to this family arriving, he found two bodies in the master bedroom and called the police. Both Sherry and Gregory were nude. Gregory was found halfway out of a closet. There was clothing covering his face and a gunshot wound to his cheek. Now, this was not what killed him. What killed him was over two dozen bludgeoning wounds. Sherry was still on the bed. Now, whatever tool was used to kill Gregory was also the same tool that was used to kill Sherry. She too, just like the other murders, had been covered with a blanket from the bed. She too had ligature marks on her wrists. It was discovered later that a window screen had been removed from an unlocked bathroom window and the killer had made his way inside. They also later discovered that two tools had been missing from a shelf in the hallway, one of them being a pipe wrench, which was likely the tool used to kill both Sherry and Gregory. This killer was dubbed the Night Stalker, but later it was changed to the original Night Stalker because police had already named another criminal, Richard Ramirez, with the same name. So that's not confusing at all, is it? So they now have two murders in Goleta, one in October of 1979 and another in 1981. Now, remember, Goleta is the is located in Santa Barbara County. It's the same county that remained tight lipped about any of their crimes, including the ones committed by the ear, the East Area Rapist, because they didn't want the bad publicity due to Ronald Reagan's ranch being there. But now they had two murders on their hands and they couldn't ignore it. Instead, what they did was pinhole a local drug dealer for it, even though the Orange County office told them that the MO, the method of operation in their area of Irvine, so Irvine and Dana, Dana Point in Orange County, and they're telling Santa Barbara County, hey, these are the same. The way that this guy did this, it's the same. But it didn't matter. Uh, Santa Barbara County decided to go ahead and try and pinhole this local drug dealer. Now, which didn't work, obviously, but after the killings in Goleta, nothing happened for five years. Now, many speculated that the killer had been arrested and was now in jail. Others thought that he might have died. Um, while the tense relief was that he appeared to have stopped, they still had no idea who he was. Now, during this time, a scientist named Alex Jeffries in September of 1984, just a few years after these murders, he discovered DNA fingerprinting and it changed the way forensic science would work from that day forward. Now, while this type of DNA fingerprinting is nothing like what we have today, it did start the process of trying to identify criminals based on the evidence left at crime scenes. But at this point in time, it was still in its infancy. Then in 1986, again in Irvine, California, the killer struck again. This time, it was an 18-year-old girl. But remember, this is a five-year time span between the previous murder and this new murder. This 18-year-old girl was named Janelle. And Janelle had a friend visit her on May 4th of 1986. And during the visit, they both heard noises outside of a window. But when Janelle looked, there was nothing there. After some time had gone by, they again heard some noises like a gate shutting. Again, Janelle looked outside and nothing. Around 1045, Janelle's friend left. The next day, around five o'clock, a real estate agent who had been previewing the home entered the home and found Janelle's body. She was lying across her bed and she, like others nearly five years ago, was covered with a blanket. Her face had been bludgeoned. 
it was later determined that it was from a pipe wrench that had been been discovered missing from the scene. Janelle did not have any ligature marks, but there was indication of some kind of scrapes on her wrists. Now, even though she had been found in her bedroom, there was blood on the kitchen floor, there was blood on the kitchen cabinets, there was blood just inside the front door and on the wooden shutters inside the home. Authorities still had no clue, no idea who was committing these crimes. Years go by. And in the early 1990s, this brought about DNA testing. And while still nothing like what we have today, it had grown from its infancy to something more of a young adult. Samples that were in good shape and fairly sizable could now be compared to see if they matched a crime scene. In 1994, the DNA Identification Act was established and gave the FBI the authority to maintain a national database. Now, this database would be called CODIS, which is a term I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It stands for Combined DNA Index System. And without going into a ton of details, uh, the information I'm going to give you is a very TLDR version and to the very best of my knowledge. But the way that it works is that the states first gather DNA from cases uh, that they have and even those that are currently serving time in jail or in prison. And what they do is they input these samples into their own database and then at specific intervals, this information then gets uploaded to the main CODIS database. But in order to test the DNA, this, this was still something new. Sure, the DNA is gathered, but testing it was time-consuming and laborious. The lab, though, in Orange County, California, was well ahead of the pack. They worked with detectives and criminalists who submitted DNA evidence from cold cases to this new lab in Orange County, which happened to be in Berkeley. Now, this lab housed over 4,000 DNA profiles of known violent criminals. This then led to opening up cold cases that had kept DNA sealed in their evidence boxes. And one of the criminalists at the time that was working on all of this was Mary Wong. And she had been tasked with taking some of this DNA and comparing it to what they had. Do you remember earlier when I mentioned the name Jim White and said to remember him? Well, he was the criminalist who had worked on the Manuela case, the case where she had been found bludgeoned at home alone. Her husband had been in the hospital for a severe intestinal issue when her murder occurred. Now, Jim White, having worked Manuela's case and the case of the Harringtons in Dana Point, always felt that the two were connected, but he could never prove it. Now was his opportunity. So what he did is he contacted Mary and let Mary know his suspicions. So what Mary did is Mary gathered the evidence from the two cases and after some time got back in contact with Jim. And she confirmed that yes, the DNA profiles do in fact of these two cases match. This was great news and it validated what Jim had suspected all those years ago. But the problem was even though they had a DNA match, there was no name associated with the DNA itself. So as Mary continued her work on unsolved cases, she noticed a profile that looked eerily similar to something she already knew. And as she checked and double checked, she discovered that not only did this, this sample match the Harrington Manuel's murder locations, they also matched Janelle Cruz. So they've got three matches now. But again, even though the DNA profiles matched, there was still not a name associated with them. They had a guy. They just didn't know who this guy was. Now, in 1997, a young and inquisitive criminalist by the name of Paul Holes was in Contra Costa County. Now, this is the area of Sacramento that was hit the hardest by the ear, the East Area Rapist attacks. And he decided one day to take a look at some of the cold cases in storage. And he came across a folder that was entitled 
ear, E-A-R. He asked a fellow officer what ear was and was told it was short for the East Area Rapist. And then the officer filled in the young Paul Holes with the details. And Paul became intrigued, to say the least. The problem was that it had happened so long ago and there still hadn't been a break in the case. Now, ironically, where Paul worked was one of the few departments that had actually kept the evidence that was collected in the ear cases. Now, since some of the cases were past the statute of limitations, many agencies, including Sacramento County, had destroyed some of the evidence that they did have. Now, that same year, and still very intrigued, Paul began to take rape kits from property to see what he could find out. The lab where he personally worked wasn't as advanced as some of the others, but he thought he'd take a chance. He knew that the ear's MO was the same and it was easy to see the connection, but there wasn't any definitive match. He had some of the DNA from the rape kits tested and though it took a long time, when he received the results, it turned out to be a match. It was the same guy. As Paul continued to investigate all the cases, he realized that a name that showed up frequently was the name Larry Crompton. Now, this is the same Larry Crompton who wrote the self-published book, Sudden Terror. So Paul took a chance and decided to get in contact with the retired detective. Larry was very receptive to Paul's phone call, and they talked about the case for some time when Larry asked Paul if Paul would be willing to follow up on a potential lead that he had years ago. Uh, Larry's bosses hadn't allowed him to follow up on the lead, but this lead was still gnawing at him even after all these years. Paul said that he would, and a couple of months had passed when Paul called Larry back. Now, Larry's hunch was that the ear attacks that had taken place in the Sacramento area were the work of the same guy. Only this time he had moved on to homicide in Southern California. Larry's hunch was that the ear attacks that had taken place in the Sacramento area were the work of the same guy. Only this time he had moved on to homicide in Southern California. He told Paul to reach out to Santa Barbara and told him that they wouldn't cooperate with Larry early on in the case. But, you know, now that some time had lapsed, maybe they would. So Paul did call Santa Barbara, but just like Larry had years earlier, he too got shut down. They completely denied that they had any cases that even resembled what Paul was investigating. However, there was some hope as they were wrapping up their call one of the detectives suggested that Paul look to Irvine. As Paul followed up with Irvine, California, it led him to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, which then led him to Mary Hong at the DNA Crime Lab. As he spoke with Mary, he gave her an overview of the rape cases that they had in Sacramento. And Mary agreed that, yes, it did indeed sound a lot like their homicides in Southern California. Now, it took some time for Paul's lab in Contra Costa County to catch up to what Orange County already had running as far as DNA testing goes. But once Contra Costa had a basic running of a program, they ran the DNA from the ear cases they had they had just to double check that they all matched. They did. Paul then told his colleague who had done the testing, Dave Stockwell, to contact Mary Hong in Orange County to see if the DNA they had for the original Night Stalker cases, see if that DNA matched up with her cases. It did. Sacramento Bee, the Sacramento Bee, then ran an article about the connection, and it read, New lead found in serial rapes by MS and Koji and Ralph Montaigne. After decades, DNA links the East Area Rapist to crimes in Orange County. For a time, he was the most hunted, feared man in Sacramento County. 
Terrified men and women flooded hardware stores, shooting ranges, and alarm companies in desperate attempts to ward off the East Area Rapist. From 1976 to 1978, the rapist preyed on dozens of people, many of them sleeping couples, in the county's eastern neighborhoods, often tying up the male before raping the female. Anyone who could read knew about how the intruder balanced dishes on the bound men and threatened more violence if the crockery tumbled and broke. And just about anyone knows he slipped away leaving rape victims after a two-year reign of terror onto unsuspecting towns, leaving behind baffled and frustrated ranks of authorities. Now, his trail may have been unearthed. New scientific evidence appears to link him with the string of killings in Southern California and has renewed the hunt for a killer-rapist. The killings, some involving couples, began in 1979 and ended in 1986. An elaborate chain has linked the same murder suspect to three Contra Costa County rapes, which have long been linked to the East Area Rapist by the crime's similarities. Anyone behind a badge in Sacramento County then had hoped one day to see the East Area Rapist in jail and the newest discovery rekindles that possibility. Though DNA evidence has produced a biological profile of a suspect, no match has been found among the hundreds of thousands in the state databank. Though the state has lagged in putting in criminals' DNA profiles, said Frank Fitzpatrick, director of the Orange County's Forensic Laboratory, his lab discovered a link among three murder cases, a couple and two women, he said. The other murders were a couple in Ventura County, also linked by DNA, and two couples in Santa Barbara County linked by similar patterns in the crimes. Authorities said that all law enforcement agencies with linked cases are going to meet later this month to discuss evidence. The hope is that together they can find a key that will lead them to a suspect. We are going to see what we can do to assist with their investigations, said Sacramento County Sheriff's spokesman, Sergeant James Lewis. Now, Lewis said evidence from the Sacramento County cases has never been tested for DNA because the statute of limitations had expired, meaning that no charges could be filed if a suspect is caught. The state time limit to charge someone with rape was six years. Quote, we may try to do it now, Lewis said of the DNA, that's part of what we will discuss in the meeting. Recent changes in the law extend the time limit for rape cases when DNA evidence is available. Lewis said that in light of new developments, investigators are looking for what may have been the rapist first murder. And this is when they first discussed the shooting deaths of Brian and Katie Majori, who, if you remember, had just been out walking their dog one evening in Rancho Cordova when they were attacked and shot. There was never a motive until now, and I covered this in part one, episode uh, number 31 of the Golden State. Paul Holes, a criminalist at the Contra County, Contra Costa County, excuse me, crime lab, said a local detective noticed a similarity to the Orange County murders, many involving couples, and asked the lab to check out the hunch. At the time, the DNA tests done in Contra Costa and Orange Counties were not very comparable because of the different technologies. But meanwhile, Orange County authorities were doing their own tests. And in October, they announced the murders were linked and developed a profile of the killer describing him as an intelligent, methodical planner who scouted victims scrupulously, choosing middle-class to affluent neighborhoods. Contra Costa authorities, again, heard about the case and asked for a DNA profile, this time using comparable technologies. Holes said the DNA from the East Bay rapes matched the DNA from Orange County. The investigation dragged on. The A&E Network was doing a series on cold cases, and one of the episodes focused on the original Night Stalker. Uh, Larry Crompton had been interviewed about the case, and still, after this, nothing came to pass. They had the connecting DNA, but no one was matching with it. 
In the meantime, someone else was just as obsessed with the case as was Paul Holes, Michelle McNamara, who wrote the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I mentioned Michelle in part one. Michelle would scour mes- message boards and get in contact with those whom she thought were onto something. Everyone wanted to know who this guy was. People on the message board would follow his path from Sacramento to near Los Angeles. They ran with theories, and when those didn't pan out, they ran with other ones. Michelle constantly tried to get in contact with those who were working on the case until one day she did. After some phone calls and back and forths, Michelle finally met up with Paul Holes in Concord to discuss the case in 2013. She had to prove to him first that she just wasn't someone who had a wavering interest in the case. The more that Paul spoke to her, the more he realized that Michelle was someone who was a natural detective. Her notes, her files, her publication in the Los Angeles Magazine, all about the Irons, told Paul that she may be, offer, may be able to offer him some insight. Now, the day she met with Paul, he took her on a murder and rape tour, to put it bluntly, of many of the places that the killer and rapist had hit. Now, since that day, they remained close and Paul began to open up to Michelle about his own theories and she did the same. At one point, she mentioned that she and her family had her family DNA done by 23andMe and that it was very interesting to be able to go back and see all of her relatives. She wondered out loud if that was something that may help with the Iran's case. Now, Paul gave it a lot of thought, but realized that places like 23andMe needed you to like spit into a tube. And since they didn't have the guy, this wasn't something that was possible. It was then that Paul went on a mission to gather a large sample of DNA to use with a company called Jedmatch. Now, Jedmatch is different. They don't send you a kit to submit your sample. They take the DNA sample you already have and then help to locate relatives using their own database. The problem was Paul needed DNA and he needed a decent, decent amount of it. He went on a mission to find out who still had a good portion of the Iran's DNA on file. Now, as I've already mentioned, many agencies had already disposed of theirs because the statute of limitations had run out. So Paul began to hit dead end after dead end. The agencies that did still have the DNA on file refused to give it to him until he came to Ventura County. Ventura still had DNA, and yes, they were willing to give him whatever he needed for testing. Now, after he received the DNA, he sent it off to Jedmatch. Now, Jedmatch had a match within a day, but, and it's a big but, it only gives you a pool of people. The closest DNA match they could get was of a third cousin. They knew that they had an idea of when this guy was born. So Paul could then narrow it down that way. They then had to look at the males born within that time frame, and then look at the males that were born in California and then look in the cities that they were looking into. They considered the Iran's physical makeup and how it related to the results that they were getting. Now, anyone that was in prison or jail during the time of the attacks were eliminated. Now, after months of eliminating men that just didn't fit the profile that they were after, they finally ended up with nine men who looked to be good candidates. One man was looking like a great candidate and asked this man's sister if she'd give a DNA sample. And she agreed, but when they tested it, it was negative. Now, one of the women helping uh, to match up the DNA noticed that or had come across somehow an old news article about an officer who had been fired near Citrus Heights, which happened to be very close to many of the original ear attacks. He had been fired for shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. Now, the researcher also told Paul that using another program called Prometheus, it spat out that based on the DNA that they had for this guy, 
The man would have blue eyes and be balding if not already completely bald. So when she sent this information off to Paul, he realized that this guy was one of the men he had on his list of six, having already eliminated three of the original nine. So when law enforcement went ahead, they pulled the driver's licenses of the remaining men on the list. Only one of them had blue eyes and was balding. This is the guy they were going to focus on. They found out where the man lived and staked out his house to try and get a sample of his DNA. They couldn't just simply walk up and ask him for it, so they waited. When they were going through his trash one evening, they noticed a discarded tissue. They bagged it up and they had it tested. It was a 100% match. On April 24th, 2018, police arrested 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo, a former police officer from 1973 to July of 1979. In November of 1973, he married Sharon Huddle of Citrus Heights. They purchased a home there, and it is this same house that he purchased decades earlier where he would be arrested. His first job as a police officer was in Exeter, California, over 200 miles away from Rancho Cordova, where his first crime took place. His job, though, he was a burglary unit police officer. Now, remember the Visalia ransacker that I spoke about in part one? These burglaries took place between 1974 and 1976. The same time, D'Angelo, who would later be identified as the Visalia ransacker, was working as a burglary unit police officer from 1973 to 1976. Visalia is 11 miles away from Exeter, where D'Angelo worked as an officer. The first of his series of crimes as the ear, the East Area Rapist, started in June of 1976. And during the rest of that year, he would commit 10 rapes. During this time, D'Angelo was still an officer in Exeter, but he would later transfer to Auburn, where he worked as an officer from August of 1976 to July of 1979, and where he would be subsequently fired for shoplifting. It's during this time, as he worked in Auburn as an officer, that he committed multiple, multiple rapes. It was later learned that after D'Angelo was fired, he threatened to kill the officer who did the firing. And the night that he was terminated, the Auburn's police chief's daughter came into her dad's room and said that there was a man outside of her bedroom window shining a flashlight into her room. By the time the chief got there, the man was gone, but fresh footprints were found outside of her window and around the backyard. Also, during the time when D'Angelo was a police officer is when Brian and Katie Majori, the young couple who had been walking their dog, had been shot and killed. Now, because of the statute of limitations and because this had been run out, he could not be charged with the rapes, but he could be charged with the murders. Now, when D'Angelo first arrived in front of a judge for his arraignment in Sacramento on August 23rd of 2018, he arrived in a wheelchair pushed by his defense team. He was in the typical orange jumpsuit that all prisoners wear and appeared almost frail and barely aware of what was happening around him. On April 10th of 2019, so we're into the next year, prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty. The judge also said, hey, it was okay to have cameras in the courtroom during the trial. Again, D'Angelo arrived in his orange jumpsuit, again in a wheelchair. On March 4th of 2020, D'Angelo said that he would plead guilty if the death penalty was taken off the table. Then on June 29th, as part of the plea bargain to avoid the death penalty, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder, including murder committed during burglaries and rapes, as well as 13 counts of kidnapping. August 21st of 2020 was the day of sentencing. 
It started with victim impact statements from those he had raped or family members of those he had killed. If a rape victim wasn't still alive, family members spoke for them. D'Angelo received 12 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus eight years. He will die in jail. And if you're interested about and want to listen to the impact statements, uh, you can actually find these on YouTube on the Law and Crime YouTube channel. When it was all over, D'Angelo gave his apology for whatever it was worth. I've listened all your statements, each one of them. And I'm really sorry to everyone I've heard. Thank you, Your Honor. He was in his wheelchair and he seemed wobbly as he tried to stand to make the statement. And you might be wondering why, why do I keep bringing up this wheelchair? Well, it's because it was all a farce. A few months after D'Angelo's sentencing, the district attorney of Sacramento, Anne Marine Schubert, gave a press conference. She wanted everyone to be very aware that what they were seeing in front of them, this frail man in the wheelchair was anything but. She then showed camera footage from inside of D'Angelo's cell. He was incredibly fit for his age. He could wipe the floors of his cell to keep them clean. He would stand on the bottom bunk in his cell to lift himself so that he could then stand on a table where he proceeded to cover the bright light with small napkins. Now, this is very reminiscent of covering the televisions or lamps of those that he had raped. He would do exercises on a daily basis. He had no issues getting himself into the top bunk of his cell by stepping on the bottom bunk and swinging his leg up. Just like everything in D'Angelo's life, it was all for show. While he was active during his Iran's phase, he was actually married and raising a family. His family had no idea what he had done or had been doing. His oldest daughter even said that he was the perfect dad, while his wife believed all the reasons he gave her for not being home a lot of the time. His wife of over 40 years divorced him in 2019, one year after he was arrested. Now, this five-year break uh, that he had uh, between 1981 and 1986, with 1986 being the Janelle Cruz uh, murder. It is assumed by authorities that the reason for this five-year break between the time he murdered Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez and then Janelle Cruz was because he had a child. His second child was born. And one last thing. Remember in the first episode, um, the name Bonnie during one particular rape case, he went into a corner and and um, after he had raped someone, he said, I hate you, Bonnie. I hate you, Bonnie. Okay. Who is this Bonnie? Well, it turns out that in May of 1970, well before he was a police officer and well before the, all the crimes began, he was engaged to a woman named Bonnie. He met her at Sierra College, but after being with D'Angelo for a year, she broke it off with him, claiming he had become manipulative and abusive. The breaking point was when he demanded that she help him cheat on an abnormal psychology test. After the breakup, he grabbed a gun and attempted to force her to marry him until her dad intervened and made him leave. So D'Angelo currently sits incarcerated and in protective custody at the California State Prison, Corcoran, uh, which is located in Corcoran, California, which is 231 miles away from his decades old home in Citrus Heights. And that, my friends, is the story of the Visalia Ransacker, the East Side Rapist, and the original Night Stalker, all attributed to one man, Joseph James D'Angelo, who, even though it's been 44 years, is now finally behind bars and serving time. Now, before I go, I want to wake, make one last plug for Michelle McNamara's book, the one called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. 
It is a fantastic read and it dives into so much more detail, far more than I could ever, ever hope to cover here. It was her passion and she dedicated her life to finding out who this man was only to be taken from this earth before she ever saw the resolution. I am forever grateful and thankful to all of you who listen to this podcast and want to welcome all of the brand new listeners to the show. You are all so very, very much appreciated. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to Beach House 34 so that you're notified when a new episode is released. You can do this on any of your uh, favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find me on Facebook at Beach House 34 or on Instagram at Beach House 34 podcast. Within the Beach House 34 podcast bio on Instagram, you can now get instant access to the most recent episodes. So be sure to check that out. It's brand new and I, I like that it's there. So uh, thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you. A new episode will be out shortly. 